From 90.7 WFAE, this is Newsworthy for Friday, February 23, 2024. I'm Eric Thiel. North Carolina's Supreme Court heard arguments in the Leandro Education Funding case Thursday, the fifth time this 30-year-old court case has been before the state Supreme Court. Andos Helms reports. Protesters outside the Raleigh Courthouse said it's past time for the state to release hundreds of millions of dollars for public education. Leandro! Leandro! In 2022, the Supreme Court ordered the transfer of $1.7 billion that the courts say is needed to meet the state constitution's guarantee of a sound basic education. When Republicans took the majority on the Supreme Court after the 2022 election, they put a hold on the transfer. In 2023, the General Assembly approved about half of the spending that had been ordered, but state lawmakers dispute the remaining $678 million. An attorney for the plaintiffs, Melanie Dubas, told the court the case should have been over in 2022. It has been the rule of this court for over 100 years that the court will not disturb its prior holding in the same case. And she said of the state officials who are fighting the payment that they seek to drag the court into their gamesmanship. Matthew Tilley represents the legislative leaders who don't want to release the money. He argued that the courts don't have authority to override the General Assembly's spending decisions and that the court went too far in issuing a statewide ruling. A plan which dictates virtually every aspect of education policy and funding, not just for the districts that were plaintiffs, but for all 115 school districts across the state, effectively removing those decisions from the political and the democratic process. Justices raised lots of questions including some about the fact that no current students are part of the lawsuit. The students who were named when the suit was filed in 1994 have grown up. The court will issue a ruling later. Ann Doss Helms, WFAE News. North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson spoke Thursday at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington, D.C. Robinson is leading the Republican primary for governor two weeks before the March 5th election. Steve Harrison has this report. In the past, Robinson has made inflammatory and hateful statements about the LGBTQ community and seemed to question in a social media post whether six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. In his speech at CPAC, Robinson blamed the media for, in his view, mischaracterizing him. Whenever they mention my name, they always mention my name in in conjunction with social issues and how I hate everybody. According to them, I hate everybody. I hate people who walk and talk and walk upright. I hate people who drive cars. I don't hate anybody. Robinson also said that the left is, quote, wrong on every topic and every issue. Steve Harrison, WFAE News. Laura Trump called on Republicans to embrace early voting after years of her party's leaders and former President Trump saying early voting is riddled with fraud. Speaking at the Conservative Political Action Committee Thursday, Laura Trump, who's from North Carolina, said the landscape has shifted. But the truth is, if we want to compete with the Democrats, we cannot wait until Election Day. If we want to compete and win, we must embrace early voting. The days of waiting until Election Day to vote are over. Laura Trump is married to the former president's son, Donald Trump is backing her to be the next RNC co-chair, along with North Carolina GOP leader Michael Watley. A Huntersville couple was charged in federal court over a $2 million bank loan and COVID-19 relief fraud scheme. Kenneth Lee has more. According to prosecutors, 
40-year-old Anthony Johnson and 43-year-old Kimberly Maddox owned and operated Pickup and Go Moving International and obtained multiple lines of credit, bank loans, and COVID relief funds like the Paycheck Protection Program. Prosecutors say the couple lied on loan applications about the company's income, revenues, expenses, and number of employees. Maddox and Johnson have been charged with conspiracy to commit bank fraud and wire fraud and making false statements to a financial institution. They face up to a maximum of 30 years in prison and a million-dollar fine. Kenneth Lee, WFAE News. A group of Lake Watery residents is suing Duke Energy in South Carolina, seeking what could be millions of dollars in compensation. Woody Kane has more. The Rock Hill Herald reports neighbors say pollution from mosquito spraying has hurt their property values and tainted fish at levels that make some unsafe to eat. The lawsuit filed last week in Kershaw County centers on Duke's use of mosquito-killing transformer oil that contained PCBs, which are long-lasting toxins tied to cancer, skin rashes, liver damage, and other ailments. Duke spokesman Ryan Mosier said this week the utility will look into questions raised in the lawsuit. Lake Watery is about 65 miles south of Charlotte. Woody Kane, WFAE News. Albemarle Fire Chief Pierre Bruton says he's leaving his role there to become Fire Chief of Spartanburg, South Carolina. Bruton was named Chief of the Albemarle Department in 2019. Before that, he served as a firefighter in Spartanburg for 33 years, rising to the rank of Assistant Chief. Albemarle Assistant Fire Chief Kenny Kendall will serve as interim chief while the city searches for a permanent replacement. Charlotte FC finished their preseason campaign last week in California and are now in final preparation mode for the Major League Soccer regular season. The opener is tomorrow night at Bank of America Stadium against New York City FC. Coach Dean Smith will coach his first home game. He says he's thrilled to start the season. Excited, to be honest, yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Um... I can feel the fever gripping in the in the uptown areas of uh, of Charlotte and the people talking about the game and you know lots of people going on. I mean, I've got to get twenty odd tickets myself, so um, you know, uh, yeah, there's an excitement growing. I'm looking forward to it. Kickoff in Uptown is at seven thirty Saturday night. If you look towards heaven on any given night, music there from Alan Stone. One of 13 additional artists announced today for the lineup of the Love & Life Music Festival scheduled for Uptown Charlotte in early May. In addition to the previously announced headliners Post Malone, Stevie Nicks, Noah Kahn, and Maggie Rogers, the festival also announced performances from the Avid Brothers, The Fray, and Lily Fitz. Heard it from a friend, she was in our bed, should have known better. Said it was the truth, she came on to you, yeah but you let her. There will also be a dedicated QC local stage featuring a lineup of homegrown talent like Sweet Spine, Modern Alibi, Late Night Special, Laura Vinson, and many others. Love and Life Music Fest takes place May 3rd through 5th. The Charlotte Museum of History's 7th African American Heritage Festival kicked off Thursday. This year's keynote speaker, Joe McGill, founder of the Slave Dwelling Project. Since 2010, McGill has traveled around the country finding and spending the night in dwellings that once housed enslaved people. In this hyper in this hibernation podcast episode, he visits a cabin for the enslaved at Magnolia Plantation and Gardens in Charleston, South Carolina. The cabin's not very big. It's probably about uh, maybe 15 by 20 on both sides. 
It's an open ceiling. And it's, it's got a fireplace in the middle. A chimney in the middle. It gave it a, a feeling of home, if you will. If if one want to consider such a space a home, you know, our ancestors did. And they had to. Had no choice. McGill talked to our Gwendolyn Glenn about the project and why he became involved in the work. My South Carolina education left me in a place where I thought that the enslaved people were happy to be enslaved. The people who enslaved them were benevolent. All that was untrue. So I had to disprove all that, if you will, because I became a park ranger at Fort Sumter National Monument. And when I became a park ranger, I had to do the research to uh, be able to talk to audiences coming to learn about the Civil War. And in learning the real story, I learned that although we're a great nation, along the way, we committed some atrocities. And one of those atrocities was enslaving people. But you would go to these sites and all you heard about were the architecturally significant big houses, the vaulted ceilings, the grand staircase. But very seldom would they tell you about whose labor was stolen to make all that possible. So you go to various parts of the country. How do you find the dwellings? Fourteen years ago when I started, it was a matter of me consulting with the State Historic Preservation Office. Every state has one. Explaining to them my desire. They provided me a list, and I started making phone calls. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a little awkward at, at the beginning because, you know, if you get a phone call with such a request, you have to think about the, the mental capacity of anyone wanting to do such a thing. Is he looking for ghosts? Is he looking for treasures? Is he seeking reparations? I'm not looking for ghosts or, or looking for treasures. It was all about acknowledging the existence of these places, acknowledging the stewards of these places, but not only preserving these buildings, but tell the real stories of the people who inhabited those spaces. Could you describe some of them and what conditions are you finding them to be in when you go there? Various conditions. I've slept on some with dirt floors that scare me the most, you know, creepy crawlies. And uh, I slept in one that sold for $400,000. People are using these, these things for all uses. She sheds and man caves and offices and rental spaces and bed and breakfasts. Now, uh, there's uh, a few that I refused to sleep in because of their condition. You know, a good gusts of wind would have had it collapse uh, right around me. Now, what are they composed of? If it was the frontier, you would see a lot of log cabins. So if you're on the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, you see a uh, material called tabby, a mix of oyster shell, sand, and lime. If you're in the, the Virginia area, you see a lot of field stones. Before these, uh, the, the land there could be made capable of growing whatever crop they were growing. They had to be cleared of these field stones. Now, the ones that you say you were not able to sleep in because of conditions of them, are they being preserved? Yes. All the ones that I have come in contact with were either at a stage of preservation or, or getting there, with the exception of one. Uh, in Missouri, there was this case of this lady who acquired property with a slave dwelling on it. Preservationists were reminding her of what she can or should and should not do with her property in accordance with the Secretary of Interior standards. And she got up so upset that under the cover of darkness, she tore it down. Oh, so, wow. 
yeah, there's that case. The ones that have had more renovations, are they preserving the history of enslavement that occurred there? I would say generally, no. How does that make you feel? 14 years ago, I, I was angry. I was getting even more angry. But I think the existence of the of the places gives potential because when the places are not there, sometimes you're lucky if you can get a sign that says there once stood. You know, a lot of these places are privately owned. I only ask access and that they uh, acknowledge what was there historically. And some of these places they do, some don't. Now, there are those places that are ready for prime time, as in museum ready, and they're, they're here for that purpose. What's it like staying in them? What What do you feel when, you, when you're staying in them? When I started uh, sleeping in these places alone, it was, uh, you know, a challenge. But as far as the thoughts going through my head, you know, you think about people in that space, especially women in those spaces, knowing that that time of relative serenity could be interrupted by the desire of the enslaver or the uh, enslaver's sons or overseers. Mm -hmm. uh, I know they thought about the bloodhounds that were on the property, trained specifically to, to chase them down. They chose to escape. After going to these places, what do you hope to happen after you leave? Well, if these places are already doing the right thing by, you know, honoring the enslaved ancestors and telling their stories, I, it's my hope that that continues. I'm dealing with a lot of uh, cases now where people want to get to that place. Uh, this history has now become political. It's all engrossed in this thing called, you know, critical race theory and and anti-woke. So some folks who, who want to go there are afraid to go there because of this political football that this history has become. And with the pushback that we're seeing in terms of the teaching of the period of enslavement, I would assume you may see that um, your project is even more important, given the climate. Oh, yeah. You know, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. You know, racism doesn't stop. It evolves. Where do you see this project going for the long range? What are your goals? We are concentrating more on the conversations that we have before the sleepovers happen. We talk about those things that people don't usually talk about with folks who don't usually look like them. You know, we talk about uh, white supremacy, white privilege, and KKK lynchings and Confederate monuments. Should they stay or should they go? Weddings on plantation, that's a big thing. And of course, now the elephant in the room is, you know, anti-CRT and anti-woke. That's Joe McGill, the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project based in Ladson, South Carolina. He'll speak about slavery and its impact on this country Saturday at 12.30 during the African American Heritage Festival. More information at charlottemuseum.org. And for Friday, February 23rd, that's Newsworthy. I'm Eric Teal.